Happy Sunday, everybody. Welcome. If you're a guest with us this morning, this is new for everybody. Everybody doesn't, has no clue what's going on right now. We're going to start in the book of Genesis, where Jacob steals Esau's blessing this morning. And just in case you're not familiar with that story, we're going to read it all together in the scripture. Genesis 27 When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. Now, it's not a joke when it said Isaac is old. Isaac is 130 when this happens. And all of the Sunday school flannel graph stories that I grew up with and the cartoon Bibles that I read as a kid show Jacob and Esau in their 20s or so when this happens. They are in their 70s. And there is still some psychotic sibling rivalry. They both still live at home with mom and dad, you know, even though Esau is married and is a grandpa by this time. They all live together as a family. That's just the way they did things. So when it says Isaac was old, he's really old. So just to give you some context for, for this, he's gone blind and he can't see and he calls Esau and he says, here I am. Isaac said, I am now an old man and I don't know the day of my death. Now then get your weapons, your quiver and bow and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Aren't you hoping you're still hunting in your middle 70s? He's seriously like 77. Um, Prepare me the kind of tasty food that I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Now, Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back. And Rebekah said to her son, Jacob, Jacob and Esau are twin brothers. Esau is older by about three minutes. And you can see some of the psychosis in this family. It says Isaac's son Esau, Rebekah's son Jacob. Uh, they both have favorites. This whole story is a tragedy because mom and dad played favorites. Esau is a real manly man. It says Jacob is a girly man who stays with his mom. He's sort of a mama's boy, stays home. And it's, there's a lot of messed up stuff going on here. But uh, Rebekah pulls Jacob aside and says... I just heard your father say, bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. Jacob says to Rebekah, his mother, but my brother Esau is a hairy man and I'm a man with smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. And his mother said to him, My son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me. So Jacob's name means liar, and you can see it all through his story that he lies and tricks people all the time. But here you can see he comes by it naturally. He's getting it from mom. Um, mom is, uh, Jacob comes by his lying honestly because his mom obviously is one too. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother, and she prepared some tasty food just the way his father liked it. And Rebekah took the best clothes of Esau, her older son, which she had in the house, and put them on her younger son Jacob. She covered his hands and the smooth part of his neck with the goat skins. And then Esau must have been a really hairy guy. <laughs> if a goat skin is what Jacob needs to wear to trick his blind dad. Okay, so then he handed to her son Jacob the tasty food and the bread that she made. 
And he went to his father and said, my father, yes, my son, who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. And Isaac asked his son, how did you find it so quickly, my son? The Lord, your God, gave me success, he replied. Then Isaac said to Jacob, come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. He's kind of got a sense that he's being lied to here. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he blessed him. Are you really my son Esau? he asked. I am, Jacob replied. Then he said, My son, bring me some of your game to eat so that I may give you my blessing. Jacob brought it to him and he ate, and he brought some wine and he drank. And then his father Isaac said to him, Come here, my son, and kiss me. So he went to him and kissed him. And then Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, and he blessed, remember Jacob's wearing Esau's clothes, and he blessed him and said, and here's the blessing, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of heaven's dew and of earth's richness an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. May the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. After Isaac finished blessing him and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence, his brother Esau came in from hunting. He too prepared some tasty food, brought it to his father, and then he said to him, My father, sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. His father Isaac asked him, Who are you? I'm your son, he answered, your firstborn Esau. And Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came and I blessed him. And indeed, he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me too, father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. And Esau said, Isn't he rightfully named Jacob, or liar? He has deceived me these two times. He took my birthright, and now he's taken my blessing. And then he asked, Haven't you reserved any blessing for me? And Isaac answered Esau, I made him lord over you and have made all his relatives his servants. I have sustained him with grain and new wine. What can I possibly do for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too. Then Esau wept aloud. And his father Isaac answered him, Your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven. You will live by the sword and you will serve your brother. And when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off his neck, your neck. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. And he said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. When Rebekah was told that her older son Esau had said, she sent her younger son Jacob and said to him, your brother Esau is consoling himself with the thought of killing you. Now then, my son, do what I say. Flee at once to my brother Laban in Haran, all these are places in what is now Iraq and Syria and Jordan and Israel. Uh, stay with him for a while until your brother's fury subsides. When your brother is no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him, I'll send word for you to come back from there. Why should I lose you both in one day? So we have this story where Isaac's dad is Abraham. Hopefully you know a little bit about the book of Genesis. God comes to Abraham, and out of all the people on the planet, he picks Abraham, and he says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to enter into covenant with you, and you're going to be my man. I'm going to start a brand new nation, a holy people from you and your descendants. 
And he, there's two different stories where God enters into covenant with Abraham. Abraham Isaac offers Isaac when he's a younger man uh, as a sacrifice to God. And, and there's a whole bunch of stories. But Abraham entered into covenant with God. And God said, I'm going, this covenant is going to bless you. And Abraham became probably the richest man on earth. Probably hundreds of millions of dollars of livestock and servants and and. They didn't own land like we do, but just he was very, very blessed in all that he did. It wasn't just monetary and physical. There was a spiritual blessing that he carried also. And then before he died, he laid hands on Isaac and he passed that on. And now Isaac is 130 years old and he is carrying in his spirit, he is carrying a blessing from his dad, from God. And he needs to pass that on. And and Isaac and Esau and Jacob and Rebekah all know This is super valuable. If you know the story before, you know that the possessions, the millions of dollars of stuff, all would have gone to the oldest son. That was the way the law was in their ancient world culture. Uh, Again, this is about 3,500 years ago in what is now Israel and Syria. And so their culture was, their law was, that the oldest son inherited everything. Well, Jacob tricked Esau into even though they're twins Esau's the older one so he's the one that got everything Jacob tricked him into selling that birthright inheritance for a bowl of soup you have to go back and read the story to see what that is and but Esau mentions it in this one and now Isaac the only thing Isaac has left he's given in his inheritance to his sons the only thing he has left he doesn't even have his sight I have the spiritual blessing that I inherited from my father who inherited it from God and I want to pass it on to my son Esau and Jacob and his mom conspire, and Jacob gets in there and gets it. And so then Esau walks in as soon as Isaac has blessed his son. And now, please note, all Isaac did to his son Jacob is say something. He just spoke something. That's it. He didn't give him any physical thing. He didn't, he, he just said it. He just said, you will be very blessed. You will get rich. You will live in the best of the land and and anybody that attacks you will not succeed. Anybody that curses you will be cursed. Everybody who's your friend will be blessed. And all your brothers and all this family will serve you. You will be the leader. This is essentially what he said. And then Esau comes in. And he says, here, Dad, I'm here. Soap's ready. Let's do this. I want this blessing. And it says, Isaac trembled violently. He was very, very upset. Disturbed. And Esau in his 70s, breaks out in wailing tears when he finds out his brother has stolen the blessing. And he says, Dad, bless me too. And I would guess, if you're like me, uh, in our modern American thinking about these things, we would ask the obvious question, well, yeah, why can't Isaac just bless Esau too? Why not? And it's not a cultural difference. It's ignorance on our part of how these things work. This is not that they had a culture and we have a culture. No, Isaac and Esau and Jacob and Rebekah understand there is only one blessing. And Esau wants it and Jacob wants him to have it. And Rebekah wants, I'm sorry, Isaac wants to give it to Esau. Rebekah wants to give it to Jacob. So they steal it. It's really, really important. It's really powerful. It's really valuable. And there's only one. There is something that Isaac is carrying in his spirit that he inherited from his dad 
that is a blessing upon his life, a prosperity, and it's a covenant with God. He's carrying the covenant that ultimately is going to go all the way down, father to son to father to son, all the way down to Jesus. He's carrying that in his heart. And he's going to die, so he's transferring it to his son. And all he does is speak. But once he spoke it, it's out. It's done. It's not physical. Obviously, it's not material in in the physical world, but it's as real as if I had one $100 bill in my wallet and I took it out and I gave it to Erin and she leaves and Will comes in and says, Dad, I need a $100 bill. I don't have one now. So that's why Isaac is so upset and why Esau is going to kill Jacob after this because they all understand Jacob has it now. And I don't. And I can't get it. Are you with me? Our understanding of blessing is we would say to somebody at church, God bless you. Or we would say to the cashier, have a good day. Or you might say, good luck. You know, which is not really a blessing, but it's the same sort of thing. We think blessing somebody is praying for them or wishing something on them or... We might understand that, that speaking a blessing to somebody is good, but it's just basically it's kind words to them, like have a good day or good afternoon or God bless you or something like that. But that's not anywhere near the full definition of what the Bible says a blessing is. Let me give you another example before we get too, far, too much further into this. In Numbers 22 is the story of Balaam and his donkey that talks to him okay if you don't know this story let me tell it to you Moses and the Israelites are wandering through the wilderness for 40 years and they're wandering around um, between Egypt and the promised land and they trespass on some territory that belongs to this man named King Balak and Balak wants to take his army and get the Israelite trespassers off of his land but he can see with the naked eye there is a cloud of fire floating over those people And every morning bread falls out of the sky and uh, we've heard a story about the Red Sea and we've heard a story about water coming out of a rock and we've heard some really wild stories and we know that the Egyptian army is totally wiped out a few years ago so we don't dare go and attack those people unless we bribe their God. Bribing the enemy's God was a standard operating procedure in the ancient world. Before you went to war, you offered sacrifices to your God so that he would fight for you, and you also offered sacrifices to your enemy's God so that he would stay out of your way, and you would be successful. So Balak needs to offer God, the God of the Israelites, an offering and ask his permission to attack the people. Basically, what he's doing here is, Balaam, I need you to find out what their God wants in order to back off so that we can attack. Standard operating procedure. This is not a one-time deal. This is the way everybody in the ancient world did it. It's numerous stories in the Bible and in other histories, clay tablets and things that we've got. So Balak hires Balaam. Balaam is the local shaman, the local local idol priest. You know, he's a medicine man. He's the, the voodoo guy. And so he says, contact their God in the spirit and see what he, what he needs, what's his sacrifices that he requires. So Balaam, you know, offers the, the chicken and the hamster and uh, lights the incense and um, goes into his trance thing. And he gets into the spirit and he contacts the God of the Israelites and God tells him, you're not going to touch my people. 
I will destroy Balak if he even thinks about attacking Moses and the Israelites. So Balaam goes to the king and he says, uh, their God says you can't fight him. And Balak says, uh, doesn't take no for an answer. He's like, you know, Balaam, I will make you a very rich man if you will curse the Israelites for me. I'll pay you 100000 bucks. You go up on the mountain over their camp and you curse them so that they're jinxed and then we'll attack. So Balaam goes up on the mountain. He does whatever he does to get in the spirit and he's going to curse the Israelites and put a hex on Moses and Joshua and out of his mouth comes a blessing to the Israelites. You will win every battle. Anybody that attacks you will be destroyed. I will protect you. I love you. You're my people. I will never leave you. Your God will bless you and prosper you and you will inherit this land. And Balak is like, whoa, no, shut up, stop, wait, no, uh-uh, don't say any of that. They ain't taking my land. No. He says, Balaam says, I, hey, I can, when I'm prophesying in the Spirit, all I can say is what the Spirit gives me, and that's what the Spirit of their God gave me. Balak says, you know what, okay, I'll pay you double. You know, I'll give you half a million bucks here, dude. Come on, curse them. So Balaam goes up on the mountain a second time, gets into the Spirit, out comes a blessing. No one will ever succeed. I am for you, not against you. I will protect you. I love you. You're my chosen people. You can read the whole story if you want to go back and get the exact words, but this is the gist of it. Balak's hopping mad now. No, no, I told you to curse them, not bless them. No, don't speak those good things to them. And so he says, you know what? I'll pay you a million bucks if you will curse them. So Balaam goes into his spirit, however he does it, and he and he asks God, he says, Yahweh God, Jehovah of the Israelites, he says, uh, this king's going to really make me rich. If you would just let me, allow me to curse these people just, just one day, just one time, I would really like to get this payment. And God says, absolutely not. And Balaam gets on his donkey and goes to do it anyway. This is the story where the, God sends the angel to lop off his head. And the donkey can see it, but Balaam cannot. The donkey is getting down and trying to go around the angel and the, Balaam's beating the donkey and finally the donkey turns to him and he says, hey, haven't I been a good servant to you? Come on, dude, I'm saving your life here. And it says God opens Balaam's eyes and he sees the angel there with the sword of fire and he hits the neck and his face is in the dirt. And I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, don't kill me, don't kill me. And the angel says, God told you you could not come up here and curse my people. He says, yeah, yeah, okay, okay, whatever, yeah, sure. The angel says, you can go up on the mountain, but you only say what God puts in your mouth. Don't you dare curse them. And so, yes, 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 okay, fine, whatever. So Balaam goes up on the mountain, and he blesses Israel a third time. And Balak is furious. He gives up. He's like, I guess we can't do this. Just because we're stuck on this story, it's not my point today, but the New Testament tells us that Balaam was so wicked that he could not disobey the oracle that came out of his mouth. But it says, the New Testament tells us that he went to Balak and he said, you know, I can't curse them. But if we can get them to disobey, it will break the blessing that God put on them. And the New Testament says this twice, that Balaam taught Balak how to make Israel sin. They sent women into the camp to get them to sin sexually and it removed all of the blessing of protection on Israel, and Balak attacked, and he won. You can go read the story yourself. So, this story 
shows Balaam and Balak and Moses and God and the nation of Israel all understand that when a blessing is spoken, it is a thing that works. It is not uh, wishful thinking. It is not hope. It is not prayer. Uh, it's not kind words. That ble- A blessing actually happens. And likewise a curse. That if Balak could get Balaam to curse them, he'd know, okay, I'll be safe when I attack him. Just couldn't get it to happen. Hebrews 4 tells us this about the word of God. The word of God is living and active. The word of God is living and active. Of course, that means the Bible, but it doesn't say Bible. The words of God are alive. And they do stuff. Hello? The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The word of God is living and active. And in Isaiah 55, God tells us what his word is doing. The words are taking action. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes forth out of my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire, and it will achieve the purpose for which I sent it. God says, I don't speak empty words. I don't even speak words that mean things. I speak words that are alive, that my words take action. My words make crops grow just like rain. When I speak into your heart, stuff happens in your heart. Yeah? Okay, so Jesus in Mark 11, now this is the third Sunday we're looking at this passage, we're talking about having faith, and specifically faith in the power of words. Jesus says our words have power. Jesus said, Mark 11, 22 to 24, Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. So this is Jesus' definition of faith. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask for when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. Okay, verse 24 is about prayer, but verse 23 is not prayer. Jesus says, you talk to the mountain and command it to be uprooted and cast into the sea. It'll happen. I don't have faith for that, just being real honest, okay? I'm not going to command Mount Emily to be thrown up in the sea, but Jesus says, if you believe what you say, it will happen. Jesus said, speak to the mountain. Don't ask God to do it. He's not saying that. He says, you speak to it. In the same way Jesus spoke to the fig tree and it withered, Jesus spoke to a fever. It says he rebuked the fever. He didn't pray and ask God for healing. He spoke to the fever. Jesus spoke to the weather. Peter, Paul, and Jesus all spoke to dead bodies. They didn't pray for resurrection. They spoke to the body and commanded it to come to life. Pretty cool stuff. Jesus says, if you speak to a mountain and cast it into the sea, if you have have faith, it will happen. In the same way, that Isaac has faith that when he blesses his son, his son will be blessed. Because I said it. 
in the same way that Balak is certain that if I can just pay Balaam enough money to curse them, they will be cursed. Some of you are still thinking. You're not quite sure. All right, I just want you to notice, prayer is good. Prayer is right. Pray all night. Pray every day. Pray without ceasing. But what I'm talking about today is not prayer. I'm not, compl- I'm not um, conflicting with prayer. It's complementary. They're, they're together. They're both right. But, but what I'm talking about today is not prayer. I'm talking about this. Proverbs 18, 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. We talked about this verse the last two Sundays, how our words create our reality either toward death or toward life. In Ephesians 4, Paul writes this to us. Let no unwholesome, corrupt, rotten, crude word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, edification means blessing or encouragement, what is good for necessary encouragement or blessing, that it may impart grace to the hearers. God's word says when we speak, we are imparting grace to the other person that we're talking to. From Old Testament until today, if you're Jewish, their normal greeting is shalom. You've heard that word before? Shalom in Hebrew means peace. So when they meet somebody and when they say goodbye, whether we're talking about Old Testament Israelites or modern day Jews in New York City, a lot of times they use the word shalom. They might bow to each other. They might kiss on the cheek like they do. Or if it's in America, they might shake hands. But they don't say hello and goodbye. They say shalom. And it means peace. And in the sense of peace to you. I bless you with peace. In the Arab world, in the Arabic language, they have the same word and it's salem. And that's salem. Salem, Oregon is the Arabic word salam, and it means peace. Salem, Oregon means peace. Yay, God. Salem is an Arabic word. The Muslims use it, but it's not a Muslim thing. The Christians in the Arab world say the same thing. And when they say salam, they put their fingers underneath their mouth, and they say salam. Salam. I take my peace, and I give it to you. That's what this verse says. Impart grace to the hearers. Give your peace to the person, your blessing to the person that you're reading. The Europeans of Bible times, of of New Testament times, the Greeks and and even the Romans, their normal greeting was, may the gods favor you. May the favor of the gods be on you. When you went in somebody's house, their house is considerably different than ours, but you would touch the door post and you would say favor, meaning the blessing or the grace or the favor of God be on this house and the people that live it. It's a blessing. So the, the Hebrew Middle Eastern word is peace. The European Greek Roman world uses the grace or the favor of God. So in every book of the New Testament, except the Gospels, The greeting Paul writes and John and Peter, grace and peace to you from God our Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. Just like everything else in the New Testament, it combines the Eastern and the Western, the Gentile and the Jew, and they combine their greetings even. Paul says grace and peace, God's favor and his blessing on you all. Cool? Yeah? So 
Hebrew, Ephesians 4 says when we say that, we're not just being kind. We're not just speaking good words. We're not wishing that they have a good afternoon. We are actually creating a good afternoon. We're imparting the grace of God into their life. So in uh, Northeast Oregon, we're going to say good afternoon or good morning or have a good day or maybe good luck or goodbye or something like that. If I tell somebody, have a good afternoon, that's a blessing. If I'm just some random worldly redneck in Northeast Oregon and I say, have a good afternoon, my words don't mean anything. But if my tongue is anointed with the Holy Spirit, you are going to have a good afternoon. Because I imparted grace. If I say to the cashier at Walmart, God bless you, the grace of God comes, the blessing of God moves from me to her. In the same way that when Jesus sends the apostles out, he says, find a man who's willing to host you in their home and put your peace on his home. The apostles totally would understand what that meant. They would come and they would say, shalom. They would take their peace and give it to them and the Holy Spirit would rest on their house. I don't mean the Holy Spirit comes in and out of us every time we you know, say God bless you to somebody, but they would take, they would impart of their peace to that house. And then... Jesus says, if they receive the gospel, leave your peace there. If he doesn't receive your gospel, pick up your peace and go to the next town. It's a thing. It's tangible. Our blessing, those of us who are in Christ and have the anointing of the Holy Spirit, our words mean things. And our words create reality. Death and life are in the power of the tongue and we create blessing or cursing as we go through our day saying whatever we say. You saying God bless you to your waitress is not a nice or kind thing to say. You are putting the name of Jesus on that person. And they are going to be blessed. God will do something for them because you said it. Isn't this exciting? Yeah. In Numbers 6, it's not going to be on the screen, but Numbers 6, uh, 22 is the Aaronic blessing. Not ironic, but Aaronic. It's Aaron, the high priest, is told to say this blessing over Israel every day. He says, uh, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So you shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. Aaron was supposed to say that every day. Those of you, I'm told, Matt Goodwin just told me you grew up Catholic, you get that blessing every time you leave church. This is, this is Aaron's blessing. Um, this is God in Deuteronomy blesses Israel. He says, if you obey me, these things will happen to you. Your children will be healthy. Your crops will be healthy. Your animals will increase. You will have supernatural increase in everything because I will bless you. He says, these blessings will overtake you. That means run you down, tackle you, and force you to be blessed. Moses blesses each of the tribes of Israel before he dies. Jacob blesses all 12 of his sons. He he stole the blessing from his dad, but then he passed it on to all 12 of his sons. So the story of Isaac only getting to bless one of his sons does not mean you may only bless one of your kids. They have a covenant blessing of God that has to lead down to Jesus. It's got to go one father to one son to one son to one son all the way down to Jesus. It's the covenant that they're carrying. You can bless all your kids. It's great. But when you do, 
you need to know it means something. You're not just hoping, wishing, praying that some random thing, maybe if I say it enough, God might actually protect them. No, you're blessing them. Um, Jesus blesses his disciples, and it imparts grace. It imparts the Spirit of God. And again, I want to just say, it's this, this is different than praying. It's not in competition or contradiction to praying, but it is different than praying. We're not asking God to do this. We're imparting the grace that's in us. And it's not like you give away a piece of your pie, so now you have less, because you know in the kingdom of heaven, anything you give away multiplies. Hello? Come on. So let's talk about Balaam's curse. Uh, In English, curse, when we use that word, we're normally thinking of hexes, jinxes, voodoo, witchcraft kind of stuff. And in the story of Balaam, it is. That's definitely uh, what the king wants Balaam to do. He wants him to do some witchcraft and put a jinx on the army so that they can't fight and we'll go in and kill him. But that is a very small part of what the word curse in the Bible means. Because Job's wife, when he's having all of his trouble, Job says, Job's wife says, why don't you just curse God and die? She doesn't mean do voodoo against God. What does she mean? She means cuss God out. Tell him how rotten he is and how much you hate him and how unfair he is. And then just die and go to hell. How dare you be faithful to this God that's just killed all our kids and robbed everything we've got. Right? She says, curse God and die. She doesn't mean witchcraft. She means cuss him out. So there's so much more to when the Bible uses the word curse, there's a lot more than a a hex or an incantation, put a spell on somebody. That's not what it means. That includes that, but that's not what it means. What it is is the exact opposite of a blessing. I speak that you will not be successful. I complain about you. I tell you you're a loser. You're stupid. You're worthless. Those are curses. That's the Bible definition of cursing, is to speak unsuccess, failure, weakness, doubt, fear, a negative future, to speak hatred or bad consequences, to disrupt or break up whatever God's will is and whatever is good for people. If I come and I bless Ted and I say, God bless you today, Ted. Have a great hunting trip this afternoon. God give you success on the last day of season to kill whatever you need to kill. Maybe sounds a little contradictory, doesn't it? God give you success in your killing. No, no, yeah. Okay, so if I say that, if I, coming from the context of everything I've just told you, if I believe, I believe that is not wishing good things or good luck on Ted, that actually something just happened. So if I complain about Ted, Ted, you're so stupid. You're late all the time. You're a bad worship leader. You're a bad friend. You're a dumb husband. That's cursing. Complaining is witchcraft. Worrying is witchcraft. Let me say it again. Worrying is voodoo. This bad thing might happen and this bad thing might happen and oh man, we should be scared of this thing and we're not going to have enough money and it's "Ah, it's not going to work out. That is cursing. You're not doing a bunch of voodoo spells and you're not cussing but you're cursing. You are speaking unsuccess to whatever situation it is you're worried about or complaining about 
or angry about. That's the fullness of the definition of cursing in the Bible. It includes spells and hexes and jinxes, but uh, witchcraft, but it's complaining, worrying, fear, doubt, insults. And as I said last week, you all know you got some pretty bad words spoken against you long ago that have shaped who you are. It creates reality. So cursing doesn't mean using cuss words, and it doesn't mean hiring a voodoo priestess to pluck a chicken and pen a doll, although there are people that do that. It means to speak unsuccess, to wish something bad. If somebody gets mad at a person or a machine or an animal and says, God damn it, that's cursing. You just wish that God would send that person to hell forever. That's really, really serious. What you are saying is, if I was your judge, I would send you to hell forever right now. I hate you that much. Don't ever damn someone else. No matter how hot it gets. You hear me? That's a curse, almost like none other. While we're on the topic, I'm going to take a little rabbit trail, and let's talk about cussing, swearing, oaths, and so on. The power of our words is what I'm talking about here. For forever, all the way to, back to the Old Testament, people have been swearing. And what it was... It isn't now in modern American English because people swear without even thinking about it. They're not mad at all. They're just throwing out words. But what, it's, what swearing was was to testify with an oath to whatever God it was that they worshipped, I am telling the truth or I am going to do this thing. So in the book of Samuel, you will hear, as you read that book, you'll hear Saul and David both use this oath that they make. May it be done to me if I do not do such and such by sunset. And at one point, David is going to kill Nabal. And he says, may it be done to me if he is not dead by sunset. Meaning, I will die at sunset if he is not dead at sunset. It's an oath. It is just meant to... uh, Test to the veracity of what I'm saying. I mean it for serious. And, and so Jesus comes along and he says, don't swear by the temple or the sun or the moon or by God or anybody else. Just make your yes be yes and your no be no. There aren't levels of seriousness in your truth. That nothing even partially untrue better come out of your mouth. Right? So when people say by God or hell or they use these words as cuss words or jesus's name as a cuss word which makes me want to kill people (laughs) Uh, what they may not even mean it but what they're doing is they're swearing an oath like i'll be damned if i go back to work there tomorrow really uh you're you know bad at the boss and they said they've just sworn an oath i will go to hell before i'll go back to work there but then they're back at work the next morning that, that's some pretty serious words. Yeah. Your words better mean something. If you don't mean that, don't say it. 
Peter, on the night Jesus is um, being tried, it's a, when Peter's denying he ever knew Jesus, on the third time it says, with an oath, he testified. Something along the lines of, I'll be damned if I've ever met him. Something along those lines. And that's really, really serious. That he took an oath. And Jesus says, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. So we don't have any reason to swear. We don't have any reason to add to the seriousness of what we're saying. Jesus said, you better be speaking all the truth all the time and nothing else. The other language that shows up in our world is just crude and rude and dirty words. Uh, Let's see what God says about that. In Ephesians 4.29 again, let no unwholesome or corrupt or rotten or crude or words to uh, translate that word proceed out of your mouth. Let no rotten or crude word proceed out of your mouth. Only what is good to bless other people. That's it. It's pretty plain. But just in case you don't get it, Paul says it again in the next chapter. Ephesians 5, 3, and 4. Among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscene language foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place but rather give thanksgiving do you see there that paul equates sexual sin with jokes about sexual sin words that are sexual it is no different not even a hint james says we read it last week you cannot have the praises of god and the blessings of men coming out your mouth and then you're talking dirty If you speak real nice when you're at church and in front of your wife, but if you're at hunting camp or off at work with the guys, then you're telling jokes and using words you wouldn't use in front of your kids, and you better not be using them in front of your kids, then you're a hypocrite. And James says you cannot have a spring of water that is partly fresh water and partly salt water. You're either all clean or you're dirty. Some of you weren't here, but several years ago, I used the example. I brought in a t-shirt with a little stain. None of us would call this shirt 95% clean. The shirt is dirty, it's stained, it's ruined. But it's only 5% dirty. That's our soul. Your mouth is either all clean or it is dirty. You can't say, well, it isn't very dirty. Well, it might not be, but it's still not pure. It's either pure or it isn't. Hear me. Next one is from Colossians 3.8. You must get rid of all filthy language from your lips. You must get rid of all filthy language from your lips. Listen to me, guys, particularly you young men. It has become just the language of American culture, particularly with our young guys, to refer to ladies, females, women, as bitches, not even as an insult, just calling them that. Do not use that word in reference to females in general. I know you hear it in music, you hear it in movies, it's in the culture, it's everywhere. It better not be coming out of our mouth. They're ladies. We treat them like our sisters and our moms is what the Bible says. Can I get an amen from somebody younger than 30? All right, come on. It's self-explanatory to the rest of us. 
Those of you who grew up in a different culture, you need to understand that is not a genteel word. You know other words that are just crude, dirty, rotten words that I don't need to repeat. Will and I were fishing at Anthony Lake a week ago, and, and there was a large group of heavy drinkers just 30 yards down the shore from us fishing, and there was one guy talking really loud, and he could not form a sentence without three F words. It was the only adjective that he used, and Will says, we're just fishing in silence, and Will says, Dad, Dad that guy doesn't have a very big vocabulary, does he? <laughs> Apparently, it's the only adjective he knew because everything was effing this and effing that. And he wasn't angry. He wasn't expressing emotion. He's just throwing F bombs three or four a sentence. That's not just a dirty word, that is a violent word. It is a violent word. You do not use that. But instead of saving it for the one or two moments in your life where you need to express really strong emotion, you just throw it out there in every other sentence or every other word. What has happened in America in our movies and our music and our culture in general and at the trailer factories and the sawmills and in the junior high schools What has happened in the last 10 years, and maybe even you could say 30, is we have run into a wall with our language. There are no more strong words. So everything has become meaningless. Back to the Tim Hawkins video that I opened this up with. We overuse words of exaggeration, not meaning to exaggerate, but if we want to say something was really cool, we don't say it was good anymore. It was was awesome. It was great it was amazing it was unbelievable it was incredible it was fantastic and all of these words have actual meanings but we just throw them out there to mean it was really good and so when we overuse them then nothing has any meaning if if somebody is swearing all the time and they just don't have a better word to throw out than the f-bomb essentially no one's going to pay attention to anything you say because what you say is meaningless and Hopefully it's not you, but just our our language has become meaningless. Jesus was so strict about not exaggerating and literally using the word exactly like it means. He said, don't call me good. Only God is good. And as a kid, I didn't understand that. Jesus wasn't good. No, he's being that careful. Don't speak superlatively about my greatness. Only God is good. Keep your mouth clean. Don't use words you don't mean. The world doesn't know any other way. The stuff you see online and on Facebook and movies and music, they don't have anything else. But if you are in Christ and if you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, your words better mean something. You better mean what you say. You better not be polluting your tongue with dirty words. But more so even than we better mean what we say, we better have faith in what we say. Like Jesus said, speak to the mountain. If you have faith, it will happen. Like Isaac had faith that when I speak this blessing over my son, he is going to now own it and I don't. I am giving it to him. All he's speaking is words. Faith in words like, in our words like Balak had faith in Balaam. That when Balaam blessed Israel three times, Balak calls off the battle. We cannot go attack now because they're blessed. 
We better not just mean what we say and not use worthless, dirty words, but we better have faith in what we say. That when, when I pray for somebody, God hears it. When I bless my wife or my kids or my church, it's going to tackle you and you are going to be blessed whether you like it or not. We better have faith enough in our words that it shuts our trap when we're about to speak worry. No, I can't say that. It doesn't mean we can't confess our sins. It doesn't mean we can talk about our problems in the right context. And people, I'm not saying you have to shut your mouth and never say anything bad. I made that very clear last week. I'm not talking about any of that. But, but that I fear God enough and I have enough faith in my words that I don't go around complaining and talking about my problems to everybody. In the right context of the right person, absolutely. Yes, lay your soul bare. But not in complaining, in faith, in repentance, in healing. You with me? I, I, what I think is, if I just left it there, that a bunch of you would leave and like, that's a really interesting sermon, but you wouldn't go and do it. So uh, we're going to bless each other right now. It will include praying for each other, but we're going to speak blessing. And we're going to have faith that when I say shalom to you, you're actually going to be shalomed. When I say the grace of God be on you, the grace of God will hunt you down and tackle you and do good things to you. Because I said it.